In September of 2014, three men in the San Rafael Desert of Utah unloaded a trailer full of equipment and loaded up two pack mules. The men, Bonner Brumley, Tyler Bransford, and Taggy Vider were professional trail builders from Idaho. They were gonna set off for a three and a half mile hike down the San Rafael River to the Mexican Mountain Airstrip. For 10 days, they camped and they worked restoring the airstrip by hand, the old fashioned way, utilizing the hand tools and the mules. And the work was a success. In fact, the Utah Backcountry Association said the airstrip was as good as new. They improved it from a usable 1,400 feet to a usable 1,800 feet. Now, why was all this work needing to be done by hand? You see, the Mexican Mountain Airstrip happens to be within a wilderness study area where motorized vehicle use or motorized equipment is prohibited. Back in 1975, a private oil company looking to drill built the airstrip along the Mexican uh, mountain area along the San Rafael River. Now, shortly thereafter, they found no oil and abandoned the airstrip. In 1976, Congress passed the Federal Land Policy Management Act and designated the Mexican mountain area as a wilderness study area. Now, fortunately for aviators, because the airstrip already was built, it was grandfathered in and use was still permitted. The improvements to one of the nation's premier backcountry airports did not come without some conflict. Not only were there people who were against the improvements to the Mexican mountain airstrip, there were people out there that were against the airstrip altogether and did not believe that airplanes or landing strips belonged in a wilderness study area. Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance was one of those who fought against the improvements to the airstrip. They posted on their webpage, naturally reclaimed airstrip in Mexican mountain wilderness study area to be improved where they went ahead and urged environmentalists and members of SUA to please tell BLM to preserve the integrity of the Mexican Mountain Wilderness Study Area by denying the proposed maintenance project. It took three years from when Steve Durchy initially began working on the project for the BLM to grant him permission to bring in the pack mules and approve the airstrip. Which brings in a good question. Do airplanes belong in the wilderness. I have to admit, I'm fairly biased when it comes to the answer to this question, and my bias might surprise some of you. You see, I'm a lover of wilderness areas. Back when I was younger, I used to fill up my Subaru at 79 cents a gallon worth of gas and head out to southern Utah to enjoy the Red Rock country. There'd be times on those trips we wouldn't see another soul for three or four days and it was absolute desert solitude. I loved those trips. The feeling that you had of being in the middle of nowhere, the solitude I was able to enjoy and the beauty that southern Utah has. It's some of my best memories and I absolutely love it. And I absolutely love the fact that there is wilderness areas being protected in Utah. Seems like as the population of Utah has grown, so has the popularity of the desert of southern Utah. Seems like nowadays when I 
hop in the car to try to go camping. It seems I'm more competing with large RVs for undeveloped camp spots, or I'm waking up in late hours of the night to the sounds of ATVs echoing in the canyons. And I absolutely enjoy the ability to find a place where you have that desert solitude. But at the same time, I think that's exactly where airplanes come in. Some of the most solitude trips I've had within the last decade have come via airplane camping, including trips down to the Mexican Mountain Airstrip, where you fly into Mexican Mountain Airstrip, you're more than three and a half miles from the nearest road, which is a beat up four wheel drive road for several miles beyond that. And you really feel like you're out there in the middle of nowhere in one of the most beautiful countries in the world. The question of whether aircraft belong in wilderness areas <clears throat> still remains largely unanswered. In fact, if you look at the land management organizations, a lot of times they have conflicting rules or agreements that don't quite answer the question whether they belong or not. And maybe the answer is that sometimes they belong and sometimes they don't. Let's take a look at some rules and regulations that surround wilderness areas. So for Bureau of Land Management Wilderness Areas, it is against the regulations to build a landing strip. It is against the regulations to have any motorized anything. You can't operate a motorcycle or a chainsaw. You cannot land an aircraft in BLM wilderness areas. In fact, bicycles and wheelbarrows are prohibited in the use, or in the, the use of them are prohibited in BLM wilderness areas. However, in Forest Service wilderness areas, the use of motorized vehicles are allowed on pre-existing structures, such as airstrips or roads. Now, in central Idaho, there are 19 airstrips that are in areas designated as wilderness. Now, these 19 airstrips have been protected under the Central Idaho Wilderness Act of 1980. Idaho, second only to Alaska, has really valued for and fought for backcountry aviation. And in that act, they showed the nation how they recognized that these airstrips are actually an integral part of wilderness areas, providing recreational opportunities and making easy access without further degradation to the wilderness areas. At the time when improvements were made on the Mexican Mountain airstrip, Mexican Mountain did not lie within a wilderness area, but it lied within a wilderness study area. So luckily, aircraft were still permitted to land and take off. Now, a wilderness study area is not subject to the same regulations as a wilderness area. A wilderness study area, for lack of a better term, is an area in which the BLM is deciding whether it should become wilderness or not. Now, the charge the BLM has been given with wilderness study areas is to protect and maintain the wilderness that is there. And according to the BLM, allowing aircraft to continue to operate on an existing landing strip does nothing to deteriorate the existing wilderness that is there. However, in the spring of 2019, Congress passed the Natural Resources Management Act and part of that was the Emory County Public Land Management, which designated the Mexican Mountain Wilderness Study Area to be now 
wilderness area. Therefore, if we look at the BLM wilderness regulations, landing an aircraft would be illegal. Now, after this has taken place, is it legal to land at Mexican Mountain right now or not? Is the BLM going to put in place exceptions to an existing airstrip such as Idaho has done to the 19 airstrips in their wilderness? That question is still to be determined. Fortunately, there are pilots and organizations who are fighting to keep backcountry airstrips open. One of those is the Idaho Aviation Association, who has a wonderful record of maintaining and keeping safe operations at several backcountry airstrips. Also, the Recreational Aviation Foundation is a foundation that fights for recreational use airstrips all over the country. In fact, in May of 2011, they created a reference document for all man land management organizations about backcountry airports and airstrips in a hope that they would be preserved and continue to be grandfathered in when wilderness acts are passed. Now, one of these organizations is the Utah Backcountry Pilots Association. I'm gonna to read to you from their website about their origins. I quote, for the record, the Utah Backcountry Pilots Association was born during a conversation on 122.9 at 7,000 feet southbound around Snowville, Utah in July of 1997. Several of us were returning from another memorable flight from the Idaho backcountry. As the basin and range of northern Utah was coming into view, and with the miracle of personal air transportation to the Idaho wilderness behind us, fresh on our minds, someone asked, what's wrong with us? Idaho is such a wonderful place. The recreational landing strips are secure, and there is an organization in place to protect and maintain them. We have a handful of strips as beautiful as anything in Idaho. Why aren't we doing anything to protect them? That was the first time, to my knowledge, that anyone suggested we organize in an effort to protect Utah's backcountry landing strips. In the past, this was easy. We would fly in once or twice a year, mostly with hand tools, clean them up. It was simple and inexpensive, and it kept the landing fields open and safe. As times changed, groups came into existence who decided that these facilities intruded on their own personal wilderness experience, and they agitated for their closure. As everyone knows, these folks can become quite outspoken and powerful. Suddenly, it wasn't so simple anymore. Out of curiosity, the next day I called the BLM in Price and asked them what they could tell me about the landing strip at Mexican Mountain. I discovered that even though the airstrip preceded modern day land use planning rules, thereby grandfathering it, land managers at the BLM had mistakenly recorded it as abandoned and it was now engulfed in the wilderness study area. About the same time, we learned that the BLM had rescinded the airplane right of way at Mineral Canyon, a strip long used by on-demand charters to ferry rafters to and from the Green River, as well as the general flying public. It soon became clear that if we did not speak up, the Utah recreational landing strips could disappear completely. Meetings were held, letters were circulated, fly-ins were attended, and people took the time from their personal schedules to learn the tools for dealing with bureaucracies. Soon, we had a fledgling but vibrant community of backcountry aviation enthusiasts. On any weekend, the airways of 122.9 fairly crackled over Utah with different groups of pilots flying to the backcountry destinations of their choice. They shared a common interest and a common goal, even though many of them had never met. 
The goal was to save the rustic backcountry flying experience of camping alongside one's airplane for our children to enjoy as well. Since then, Utah Backcountry Pilots Association has prevailed in lawsuits to protect these airstrips that have reached all the way to the Interior Board of Land Appeals in Virginia and many airstrips that have been returned to the Utah Aeronautical Chart. The combined effort of individuals has been the key to our success. These airstrips exist today for one reason. Pilots decided to organize and do whatever hard work it took to preserve them. My advice is get involved. Wherever you go, be an ambassador for aviation. I believe that the Utah Backcountry Pilots Association greatest asset is the diplomacy or the diplomatic way we may or we have presented our case for continued access to these magnificent airstrips and the relationships we have fostered with various federal and state land management agencies. I have found that for the most part, the people in these agencies are good, honest folks who will respond kindly to the sincere questions from the public. Did you know that just a short walk from the airstrip at Fry Canyon, which served the Radium, Radium King and Happy Jack Mines, to name a few, is a nostalgic roadhouse left over from the fabulous 50s, the Fry Canyon Lodge? There are ancient cliff dwellings, a magnificent slot canyon for canyoneering, and many other interesting hikes as well. Hidden Splendor was owned and named by a famous woman air race pilot of the 1930s who holds more speed and altitude records than any other American. Have you seen the petroglyphs 100 yards from the airstrip at Mexican Mountain? How about the grandeur of the Green River at sunrise taken from Mineral Canyon? Do you know there is a rock carving of a simple cross made by Kit Carson in 1843, five years before the Great Basin had a single permanent residence, and still visible a short hike away from a backcountry airstrip. Backcountry flying in Utah provides so much sense of discovery that over the years of flying there and exploring it, my list of mysterious places keeps getting longer. We hope to promote flying in Utah. We welcome you to our state. We recognize the inherent hazard and risk involved in the backcountry flying, and we'll strive to minimize this by disseminating information on airstrip conditions and canyon flying techniques. The website is one aspect of our effort. We believe that a significant potential exists in our state to develop a handful of remote landing fields, and we hope you'll come fly with us and join the effort. End of quote. I'll admit. I've actually never joined any one of these associations outside of a service project to help restore a campsite. I've never donated any money nor participated in the bureaucracy in helping preserve these airstrips. However, even though I'm not a part of those organizations, I still feel like I play a key role in keeping these airstrips open. And I'd say that key role I play is through my etiquette and my use of these backcountry airports. As many of you know, it takes one bad apple to ruin a good thing. If I go down to Mexican Mountain and I decide to trash the place and leave garbage and build fires where they don't belong, it's not going to take long before the BLM decides, yeah, we don't want pilots. We don't want people back in there. We're going to shut this thing down. Backcountry etiquette isn't simply just to keep airstrips open. It's also a common courtesy to the other pilots that utilize these airstrips. 
Nobody wants to show up to a wilderness airstrip and find the campground trashed and unusable. They want to find it in pristine wilderness conditions. They want to see that the last person who used it left no trace. Also, there's a lot of etiquette besides just leaving no trace, but also being courtesy or having courtesy to others who are utilizing the airstrip. Imagine that you have flown into a nice backcountry airstrip and you've camped there overnight. And right at about 6 a.m. before the sun has fully come up and it's just starting to change from full dark to just a little bit of light, you're woken up to the sound of some guy firing up his aircraft. And not only does he fire up his aircraft, but he doesn't pull the throttle back to a thousand, leaves that thing running like 1500 RPMs for 30 seconds or so, destroying that engine. And then he leaves it running, sitting there in the tie down area while the defroster starts defrosting the airplane and he's overviewing his flight plan and getting the cockpit ready. Then he taxis to the end of the runway only to do a prolonged run up involving several prop cycles and then finally departs to where you hope, okay, finally I can get some peace and I can get a little bit more sleep only to find out that this pilot is practicing his touch and goes because his instructor told him that the best time to fly in the mountains is bright and early in the morning. The aviation industry might have more integrity than any other industry out there. There's a lot of things we do as aviators that we do not so much because there's specific enforcement or regulation, but because we have integrity. I was super surprised when I first became a pilot, that I found out when I'd fly to these small airports, there'd be keys to a car hanging on a clip and I could just take the car and utilize it for whatever purpose I deemed fit. And the airport managers just assumed that the pilots would have integrity and be respectful to the car, put a little bit of gas in it. And these programs have continued and there hasn't been a bad apple that has ruined it. In the aviation industry, there are strict standard operating procedures. Flight instructors have a code of conduct, and likewise, backcountry aviators have a code of conduct as well. From the Recreational Aviation Foundation Code of Conduct, I'll read some of their bullet points. So they say, use a pack it in, pack it out, and leave no trace practices. Keep your aircraft clean of weed and seeds to prevent the spread of invasive vegetation. Recognize and minimize the environmental impact of aircraft operations. Go beyond applicable agreements, laws, and regulations in being considerate stewards of the environment and to others who may be sharing it. Act with courtesy to other recreators. Maintain reasonable distance and altitude and reduce your noise signature from a safe minimum. No wildlife refuge boundaries and seasonal areas of wildlife congregation to avoid low-level overflights. Minimize discharge of fuel and oil during refueling, pre-flight practices, and flight operations. Avoid very early morning departures unless safety of flight requires a deviation. And do not use sensitive backcountry airstrips for training. Stay long enough to enjoy the special recreational benefits, but that is not a place to be conducting touch and goes.
Maybe aircraft belong in the wilderness. Maybe aircraft don't belong in the wilderness. I think it's important though, that pilots recognize that that is a question and a debate, and it's gonna continue to be a conflict throughout time. We are very lucky as aviators to be able to go to places like Hidden Splendor that is surrounded by the Muddy Creek Wilderness Area, or Mineral Canyon that's bordered both by Labyrinth Canyon Wilderness Area, as well as Canyonlands National Park, or Mexican Mountain, which does now reside in a wilderness area. I hope as we use these airstrips, we're grateful for their use, we recognize their value, and that we have that backcountry code of conduct and we keep our etiquette to preserve these strips for future aviators, for ourselves, and for other aviators who want to enjoy these airstrips. <laughs>